You're listening to the Menopause Movement Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. If you haven't taken advantage of the Menopause Movement beta course yet, sign up at menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones. We offer this $500 beta course at no charge to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials. Now, we normally require a lengthy application to join the course, but because you're a podcast listener, you can skip the application, go straight to the front of the line and get started on the material. Now, if you've always wanted to understand your hormones and manage your menopause naturally, this program is definitely for you. We just simply ask for feedback and testimonials so that we can improve the course to help more women. Just go to menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones to sign up for this program so that you can start to step out of that minnow muck that has kept you stuck. This is the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Today, we welcome my friend and colleague, Deirdre Fay, to the podcast. Deirdre Fay works with people who have crummy histories to develop an inner platform for success to get their needs met for life. With decades of experience as a psychotherapist and educator, Deirdre brings together modern neurobiology and ancient wisdom into a practice in what she calls becoming safely embodied. She's just published a new book titled Becoming Safely Embodied, A Guide to organize your mind, body, and heart to feel secure in the world. During the podcast, we talk about how to listen to yourself, what emotions really are, internal versus external signals, anxiety versus excitement and possibility, separating the past from the present, what is shame, the seven foundational attachment needs, the role practice plays in success, the 17-second nervous system cycle, what to do to keep that alive and present feeling between therapy sessions, and stay to the end to discover some practical tips to get out of overwhelm. At the end of the episode, make sure you visit drmichellegordon.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find the show notes plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoy this episode, make sure you like and subscribe on YouTube and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, like Apple, for example. So you're always the first to know when each episode is released. And thank you for all the five-star reviews. If you haven't left a review yet, please take the time to review the podcast because this helps more women find it and get the help they need during this disruption of menopause. No one should have to go it alone. And thanks again for being a part of the menopause movement. Now let's get to Deirdre. <music> Deirdre Fay, this is your third time back on the Menopause Movement Podcast. Welcome. I'm so glad to have you here today. It's so great. So you got a new book coming out. Sure do. Becoming yeah. Safely Embodied. Becoming Safely Embodied. Now, isn't, isn't that your, you have a course, right? That you teach. Absolutely. That's based on this. This is so you're, this is all based on, on the course and the teachings that you do to help people become safely embodied, right? Right. One of the problems is that people feel they, they might be successful on the outside, but inside they're confused, disoriented. Nobody helped them put some of the pieces together internally. So they're left with a lot of not knowing where to go and how to do what, how to listen to themselves, how to make sense of their inner world. So the becoming safely embodied skills are really simple and concrete, very practical skills to help you put yourself together in the way that you want so that you can actually go where you want to go. I call it building an inner platform for success, whether success in life, money, love, um, any kind of relationship, 
just feeling good about yourself. You do a lot of work with weight stuff. The reason why people don't can't sometimes overcome their own weight issues is because of the unmet needs inside. So we look at all that and help people step their way through. So they, it's like, Oh, okay. Now I can take that step forward. Yeah, no, that's, you you know, you talk about putting yourself together and learning how to listen to yourself and, and, you know, in menopause, there's so many people who who say things that are really, you know, let me just, I was actually just looking at some surveys to get a little closer and, you know, that, that I want to feel confident enough to date again without having to put up a warning sign about my mood swings, right? I mean, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of the audience can, can relate to that and get my self-confidence back because I need to lose weight. And so, Becoming safely embodied, part of that, I think, comes to like feeling comfortable in the skin we're in, right? It is. And also being able to identify the internal signals and the external signals that say, like, this person would be a good person to date. It fits with me. Or this person, there's some warning signs. Do I pay attention to those warning signs? Or am I so used to jumping over there in my life that I don't pay attention to them? And then I have to deal with the consequences later. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed is that the dysfunction that I grew up with tends to be what I'm drawn to when... We call it a reenactment. When I'm stressed. And so like when the stress really starts to happen, I start to find, I start to look for crazy because I grew up with crazy, right? And I have to be really, really mindful to, you know, the fact that I'm going toward crazy because I'm feeling... I'm feeling stressed. Does that make sense? 100,000%. And then it's beginning to identify, well, what are the signals of crazy so that I can anticipate it ahead of time and start orienting myself before I get drawn to that or have an alternative route in place so that I actually can take a a circuitous route instead of falling into the hole. Yeah, it's been really interesting. And, and one thing I think that is so important, you know, humans don't come with a, an instruction manual, right? We, we birth our babies and you know, they come out of, you know, sex, which is this, you know, thing that we fumble through or learn how to do better as we, as we grow up and we then have to raise them. And one thing that I've learned as an adult, and this is later in my life, maybe, you know, in the last five years is that, you know, what are emotions for? right? We don't get taught anything about emotions as we go through our schooling, especially in America, where we're taught how to really how to be factory workers, right? I mean, isn't that what school is all about? Getting you to listen to the bell and change and, and you know, follow, follow the rules, right? And so then you start to get, you know, emotions and you start to f- try and understand what they are and they can be so confusing. But when you really pay attention to them, you know, they become the beacon, right? To move you. Well, it's if you, you can learn how to interpret them in a way that's satisfying and helpful to you. But mo- one of the big problems is that people don't. And it, it's not even just when you go to school, it's even earlier. If nobody was interested in you, nobody paid attention to your inner world, we call this attunement. Mm. Nobody listen to like what's going on in there and found you fascinating enough to spend time helping you sort that out. And when that didn't happen, then you're not going to have that skill. So it's one of the things I talk about, about having learning how to have a developmental task of an adult is to actually be able to attend to ourselves and not just let it blow up inside of ourselves. Cause a child, a developmental task of a child is to get our needs met from outside. That's yeah. what should happen to everyone. But most people, it didn't happen. So then the question is, as an adult, how do I now pay attention to myself so that I can have the needs met outside 
with me or in relationship with the outside world. And this is the big quandary and cauldron that everybody goes into. You can't escape it unless you had a very secure growing up, which most people didn't. One in four had a secure growing up. So the rest of us had to learn how to put the pieces back together. Yeah, we sure did. And I agree too. So you talk about how to listen to yourself. What is one practical tip that you can give the audience on how to listen to yourself or how to well, even start that? Go through both in the book and in the course is looking at how do you disassemble and find the internal working blocks that are there and which are thoughts, feelings, and body sensations. And most people get that all confused and they live in a big jumble of it. Mm. So what thought are you having at that moment? And when you're having that thought, what feelings go on? And when you're having those feelings, how can you track it even more and see what, what's the body sensation of it? Now, people will then try to go shorthand and answer like the body sensations are feeling. No, they're very specific underlying issues. Actually, one of the things I often teach about, I'll show you here with it, is what's the difference between anxiety and excitement? And if you look at it, anxiety has, it has a name, right? We can say, well, anxiety is here. And we can say, well, there's feelings that go with it. Okay. But what are the underlying tiny sensations of anxiety? And when I ask roomfuls of people, what they say are fast breathing, right? Mm. Butterflies, constriction. What are the other things of anxiety? Wanting to run. Racing thoughts. Racing thoughts. Or doomsday thoughts. Right, exactly. But racing thoughts are actually a thought about the experience that's going on. So what is a racing thought made of? But these are like, if we start looking at this, mm. if we, if then I ask people, so what is excitement? And when people look and they say, well, okay, I get butterflies in my stomach, racing, feeling in my body and wanting to run towards something to move. I want excitement. There might be constriction like, oh no, you know, all that's going on. So what? It's pretty much the same cluster of sensations that are going on in there. But the thing is, we, if we've grown up labeling this cluster as anxiety, every time we get close to that cluster of sensations, that's what we're going to go to. But if we stop and stay with the sensations, we can begin to find a choice point, like maybe there's something else out there that could also be that cluster. And then That's you have great. a lot more choice in your life. So once you can tell the difference between anxiety and excitement, then you can actually start to see maybe possibility. Right. When you're starting to feel excitement. Right. That's cool. Or just any of that cluster of sensations. And that begins to change your life. Instead of being afraid all the time, you begin to be like, oh, wow, maybe I'll move out into the world in a new way. So one of the things that you talk about in your book, and you, you mentioned trauma. I mean, obviously, we talked a little bit about trauma in the past, but I see more recently on Facebook, and it could be just the, uh, the current people that are in my sphere that are showing up in my Facebook feed based on their algorithm. But I see a lot of people saying, XYZ is a trauma response, and this and that is a trauma response. And so it's like, Speaking about trauma has become, it's either more prevalent or I don't know, it's, it's, it's like more normalized. What do you think causes us to have difficulty healing from trauma or even recognizing that we've been in trauma in the past? Well, I'll do you another diagram. Okay. I love diagrams. 
make it much more understandable. One of the great problems with trauma and why healing doesn't happen with trauma or really anything, because the past is always flooding into the present moment. So one of the key things we need to do is separate out the past from this moment now, from the present. And in this moment, and this is where people get really hung up, in this moment, we're whatever age we are. But our past has what I call all these different time capsules. Now, as a doctor, you know, these aren't, this is not scientifically correct what I'm saying, but these are, these are like a time capsule. Something have the first time you rode a bike, right, is in here and all the feelings you had about it. That's my great bike. <laughs> thoughts, the experience about it is loaded into a time capsule. Let's say you had a good experience. So now in the, in the current moment, when you think about bike riding or going on a bike, you think, oh yeah, this is connected up inside. And you're like, oh, that's great. But let's say you had a crummy experience riding a bike and somebody shamed you, mm. made you wrong. The kids bullied you and, and kicked you off the bike and you went home and there was nobody there to comfort you, reassure you, help you make that better or go and stick up for you. Whatever the case may be, you didn't have that. So now when something happens, maybe you're at work and you have to give a presentation and there's dead silence or you give a presentation and people like turn to each other and roll their eyes. Now this is going to somehow connect to the bad experience. And that bad experience is going to explode psychologically into this moment. Mm. You're going to have the feelings that were undigested from back then, but you're going to think it's happening now. And it is, it's not like it's not, it is happening now, but the undigested part of it is coming up into the present moment. And the purpose of it is to get digested, but most of us don't know how to. And when this happens, let's say you were bullied at three. At three, you didn't know how to digest those feelings. Nobody helped you. So here you are now, let's say you're 45. You're going to be experiencing what the three-year-old was experienced without any help. You're still a 45-year-old, but the felt experience is something different. So that unhealed three-year-old comes up and yeah. is here in the moment and we're confused. We're like, what the heck happened? Right. I, I remember when, when not too long ago, I was, I was at a conference and, and the, the person leading the conference said, well, you know, if you, if you haven't dealt with whatever traumas have come up from your childhood, continually reacting as if, you know, that hurt child, are you going to let a child run your life for the rest of your life? Exactly. That really went home for me. It's like, are you going to let a four-year-old run your life? Are you going to be a four-year-old for the rest of your life? That's, and pretty that's what happens here because here you're in a meeting and yeah. you're trying to con communicate at this level, but this is now taken over. So you are literally going in here and communicating from here, expecting and wanting these needs to be met or the experience to happen in the same way here, but it's not what happens. Our task as an adult is to be in relationship here, interacting here so that we can then be in relationship with the world out here. Right. So we want to be in, so, so the people who are listening and are not be able to see what Deirdre showed was experiencing our, you know, experiences that we kind of encapsulate in our brain as memories. In our bodies. And in our bodies. Yeah. And, and when we experience feelings like shame that come from adult things, we react as if we were that child. And what we're trying to do is, and what she teaches in her book and in her courses, is how to elevate yourself into the adult world and actually manage those, those things. Does that make right. sense? Is that right? Okay. That is right. And I'm going to add a caveat there in that I say that 
Shame is an attachment wound. The reason why we're ashamed is because we didn't have those needs met. And these are really fundamental needs. And I talk about them in my book is these seven foundational attachment needs, safety, safeness, belongingness to a tribe. That's a huge one. Do I feel connected and feel like I have a, a place in this world with this group? Sensing attunement. Do I feel attuned to? Do I know how to attune to others? Those are basic fundamental needs. If you don't have that, you're not going to know how to have empathy or connection in the world. Reassurance and soothing, knowing how to calm your body, being able to deal with the feelings that come up that are so big and overwhelming. If nobody helps you do that, you don't know how to do it now. Having guidance and mentoring, having somebody be expressing delight at who you are and thinking you're the most precious thing in the whole world and fascinating. And just, I just want to be around you all the time. If you didn't have that as a child, you're not going to know what to do in the world. You're not going to know how to receive. If nobody helped you deal with conflict and repair conflict and see that relationships get stronger out of conflict, you're going to be afraid of interactions that cause disruption or the tensions that are there. If you didn't learn how to let things roll off your back, you're going to always be tight and restricted and defensive. So these very basic foundational attachment needs are there. If you don't have those met, you're going to feel like something's wrong with you because it's so primary, so part of a human being. You should have had those. I should have had those. If Mm. we didn't get it, it's our whole system. It's like, it should have happened. Why isn't it that way? And we, it's instinctive. None of us second guess that. We say it's not fair. It's not right. It should be different. So when those needs aren't met, that's where we go into shame and we feel like something's wrong. And one of the most curative things that can happen is when somebody realizes, I didn't get those needs met. There's nothing wrong with me, but now let me repair that myself so that I can have a different experience. And that, I can say that because I I was like a a shame-filled person all the time. I was always that horrible experience of shame was always in me. I felt like there's something wrong with me. And yet the more, God, I don't know, Michelle, I talked to like expert after expert. Nobody helped me figure that out until I started learning about attachment theory mm-hmm. and realizing that's what it was. When we don't have those needs met, we think something's wrong. And it's such a primitive level. It's before our brain develops. Sure. And so it's on a felt experience. I mean, this is in the first five years. And then well, again, first three, right? Early. Yeah. And then of course there's a second phase of attachment, but I think that, that it's really, really important for us to realize that, that, you know, if you're, if your mother had some sort of trauma, you know, had to stay in the hospital, you were separated from your mother at birth, like I was, you know, right there, that's an attachment problem. And exactly. in my experience, you know, I was a third child and, you know, my mom was like this, I would say, she was like 22 when she had me and I was her third child and Mm -hmm. she was a child herself. I mean, she was escaping her own traumas when she married my father. And so it's just, it's, it's really interesting when we start to, as adults, you know, take our adult brain and look at our childhood and say, I need some help here. I need some help here. I need some help here. (laughs) Right. Because I, I, when you were talking about having the past become president present, the, the vision I saw was like the experience of my childhood kind of bubbling up to the surface as I'm experiencing something new. I thought about a couple of experiences I had when I was pretty early in my surgical career and had some maybe not so pleasant interactions with colleagues who were questioning me. And because of coming from this patriarchal home where my opinion never mattered, it just didn't matter. And I was always dismissed and, and 
so I got very defensive and I was always really defensive when people, you know, would challenge me. And rather than seeing it as a challenge and not necessarily a conflict, I just got really defensive and lashed out. And so recognizing that and healing that and and being able to have a dialogue with people, that that was that was huge for me. Yeah. yeah. I think of it as well, actually John Bowlby, who's a grandfather attachment theory, talks about the internal working model that gets imprinted in us early on. For me, it feels like it's a, it's a contact lens that I'm wearing and I, it's how I perceive the world. And if I, like you, didn't have somebody there, wasn't there early on, I felt dismissed, like it didn't matter, that is going to be the lens I look out on the world. And it's so much the air I breathe that I can't, it's hard to distinguish it. And people will actually start arguing for their reality rather than being able to say, okay, let me just take this contact lens out for a moment, see what's there, see what the possibility is. And that's where people can make tremendous strides in healing, but it has to be recognizing. It's a matter of being able to remove the veil of belief. And the problem is, is that the way things have always been are the way things people think they should always be. (laughs) And, And so helping people to see that everything is a belief rather than it being the truth. And that, that I think is the hugest, you know, I mean, it, it was so freeing for me to realize that, oh, there's only one real law that I know of, and that's gravity, right? You know, you pick something up, it's going to fall. <laughs> Other than that, there's nothing real, and everything else is a belief, and so it's all malleable, and I can change it. That was so freeing for me, because that means that I'm not stuck in anything. I don't have to stay in any thought pattern. I don't have to stay in any, right. you know, any of that stuff. So, that was really cool. So let's talk for a second about triggers. Let's hear about what you think triggers are. And well, first of all, let's just, you know, what is being triggered? Let's talk about that to start, you know? I mean, I guess I could say that, that I was triggered, you know, when, that, when I was talking about people who are challenging me when I was, when I was working as a surgeon and, and feeling, you know, really, I don't know, defensive because, you know, like, like I didn't matter. Right. That's, that was my whole life for the longest time was like, I didn't matter. I didn't matter. I didn't matter. I guess that's well, a trigger. triggers, could, you could see it as when the past floods into the present moment. You know, on that diagram on our show to the past, mm-hmm. and bottom when those time capsules erupt, you can have a positive trigger, like something wonderful could be, and you'd be like, oh, you're triggered into a blissful state. But we mostly talk about triggers in the negative way, which is when all this undigested material from the past floods into the present moment and takes over. And in our current moment, we feel like this is happening now, and we can't peel it apart and track it down. So I have this whole model in the Becoming Safely Embodied Practices, which is about calling parallel lives. You're in this moment, and all that past is flooding in. So how do you stay in this moment and recognize the past that's coming in, name it, and be able to then put it together in a different way? Mm -hmm. I love that. So this is almost like subconscious programming, really, that because... No, it's, you're being conscious of what has been imprinted early. Right. But the, the imprinting the imprinting was the subconscious programming, That's right? So say, yeah. we often react from our subconscious. We're, we're programmed as children, and it, it may or may not be intentional. It just is what it is. And with these specific mindfulness techniques that you teach, we can actually get free of the constant programming with awareness. 
<laughs> right. And you get to choose. I get to choose what I want to be imprinted with. Yeah. And there's specific ways to do that where if you get to know what the signaling that's happening from inside and outside that has you go into that old pattern, how do you begin to see how do I change that signaling? How do I deconstruct that and construct a world in which I want to live in? I love it. So is there anything else that we can do when we when so when my mom was alive, man, it didn't matter until she got sick. She always triggered me. So, <laughs> and, and I think, I, I think our laugh, I get it. Yeah, though. no, no, no. Our parents, our parents are, you know, they're, they're like a huge trigger for, so for those of us who say maybe have to be taking care of our older parents or still have to interact with our parents who are triggering us, what are some practical tips you can give us that we can put into effect right now to help right. with that? There's so many people, there's a number of people in our community right now that are dealing with that. One simple thing you could do is stop looking at that person as the identity of mother or father, and instead say, this is an old person that I've known for a long time. That simple de-identifying from it gives a little bit more space. So that's one thing, because when we have mother on it or father on it, we're like, all that unmet need starts bubbling up immediately. It's like instantaneously. So saying, oh, here's an old person. This is what I had to do with my father right? This is an old person that I've known for a long time. And how can I be compassionate right here with mm -hmm. boundaries, but I can attend and be present without losing myself. So that's a key piece that has to happen. And then it's about being able to name it. And what I mean by that is what's going to happen is all that unmet need, all those time capsules are going to come up and they're often going to come up as body memory, more than a mental memory, a cognitive memory. So when we're triggered by somebody, especially somebody that close and intimate, especially from an early age, it gives us a chance to say, put to put the pieces together. It's like, oh, that's what happened. Oh, I just got really depressed. What happened? Oh, that's the pattern that went on. I got really angry. I just wanted to scream. That's what it was always like. When we begin to say, this is the history showing up in the moment, instead of it happening right now, we link it together. And that allows, instead of being free floating material, we link it together and we're like, oh, now I can choose what I want to do about it. So those, those are, it's simple, it's, but it's It calm. sounds so simple, but I don't see, I think everything, every change that we want to do starts with awareness, right? And then we have to make this decision to be aware when it happens and not act out of rote. And I know when my father was sick and I had to put him on the toilet once when I, we took him to a doctor and, and I had, and I was just, I was mortified. I did not, I did not want to ever be in that position with my father. And it just, it felt so inappropriate. And so, and I'm like, I I'm not doing this. And, and it's just like all of the things. And it was almost like I had, I was, I had no control over the emotions that were coming right. up because I was right. so just, I was disgusted with the fact that he had no control over his body anymore. I mean, just there were so many things because here's my viral dad who viral, I mean, viral, not viral, <laughs> <laughs> you know, who taught me everything. I mean, it's so funny because when he passed away, I wrote a eulogy and the eulogy was all about everything that I love. I learned from my fat, my father, and I had to actually come to grips with the fact that, you know, not only was he sick and ailing and, and all those things, but I had to also come to grips with the fact that, you know, at some point 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be there too. And I'm going to die. And, you know, so all of those memories of that emotion and everything just, it was rough. And so trying to be present in the moment, that's really hard when there's a lot of emotion. Absolutely. hundred percent. That's why we have to practice when it's not a lot going on so that when a lot goes on, we can have a greater capacity to rise, crest and fall. It's also one of the powerful reasons why I like yogic psychology, which is basically saying that this life force that's in us, this powerful life force that comes through us is coming through to clean out the knots in our system. They call it the samskaras that are in our physical energy bodies, our subtle bodies. And that force is coming through to clean out what isn't us so that we can be free to be ourselves. But that takes a lot. It takes a lot of learning how to rise, crest, and fall, and surf life instead of getting caught in the deep undercurrents of it. Yeah, I like that. And you know, you talk about practice. Practice plays such a huge role in success in everything. I mean, we, you know, since the brain doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's imagined, when we imagine ourselves into a situation and then practice the response that we want to have, what we can do is we can actually start to show ourselves that we can do it. Right. And that's what athletes do. And that's what actors do. And, and so practice is a huge part of this, I think, more than anything 100%. else. A simple practice that people can do is in compassion-focused therapy, we talk about the soothing rhythm breath, but an embodied way to practice it. It's like becoming aware of your situation and what you're feeling at the moment. Like say you're anxious and you're like, okay, I'm anxious. Let me feel what that is. And let your hands express that internal experience. So let's say you're anxious and you're like, like this. So, so how do you have your hands do this? And then begin to make a soothing movement out of it. So you're literally taking that material that's experienced from inside to outside, externalizing it so it's not this heavily loaded, and then you're inviting it to change by bringing in a different experience. And people find that so helpful, just a simple way to shift experience. Now, you have to do that 20,000 times a day because this is so entrained in us. It's so habitual that we have to do it differently. We know that the brain rewires every 17 seconds, but how do we then link up 17 seconds with 17 seconds and 17 seconds? Most of us have a hard time doing that. So it's learning how to savor and sink into and marinate into this, this feeling rather than this feeling. So that that's, but that comes to being present. So if the brain actually rewires itself every 17 seconds, then the whole nervous system. Yeah. So that makes me wonder about our attention span, right? So because the attention span is going, getting shorter and shorter as we increase our digital knowledge. And, you know, now you're lucky if you get somebody to see what's on your webpage or, or your Facebook page for one second right? Or your video for one second. How do we use this knowledge of the 17 second cycle to improve our own learning or our own physiology? Having to deal with it myself, it's a constant choice to orient toward what feels more nourishing and satisfying. And part of the reason why people shift gears so quickly is they're always looking for a dopamine hit of some kind. So what if we actually in the moment say, okay, how do I be with this moment? Let it bring a sense of completion to us, rising crest and fall, then have the next moment. And again, look for that moment of like that little bit of like, 
you know, and, and I know you practice breathing practices. So when we take a breath in at the top of the breath, there's just a slight before it rolls over into the next breath. The same at the bottom. What if we go take that breath in at the top, just gently hold it and savor that, then let it fall down, savor the bottom, just a little moment. So this constant retraining of ourselves. And I actually think trauma is a modern day bodhisattva training that we are literally training ourselves, body, mind, and heart to be a different person and to use it, the crumminess of life to actually be who we want to be. And some people aren't going to be up to the test. That's totally cool, right? We all have different karmas that we're working through, but yeah. the possibility of doing that, the possibility of freedom, it's worth everything. Freedom. Freedom means a lot of different things to different people, but freedom from trauma, you know, I, I kind of see it as this anchor that keeps pulling me back. That's keeps trying to, to pull me back. And as much as I try to cut anchor, I still get pulled back from the memories. And that's... Well, well John Gottman talks about with couples, he talks about you're always going to have a perennial problem. And so that anchor of trauma will always be some kind of perennial problem that you're working with. But you can use that as the fodder, which I know you already do, Michelle, for becoming who you're meant to be in this lifetime, becoming full, growing, developing, and flourishing. Working it's not just it. not to stay stuck. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, staying stuck is not an option for me, and that's one thing that I know. You know, I as I as I hit middle age, I was like, I, I can't stay stuck. I, I've got to keep on moving. And and then you know, with the pandemic and working from home now and stuff, trying to find and switch up my routine, keeping it interesting has been has been kind of fun. <laughs> you know, for those people who have therapists, right? I recently went through a, a 15 week therapy session that was, you know, kind of a, a, a start point in point, which was, which was nice because I'd never had a therapy situation where I actually said, okay, we're going to have this many sessions. Here's the goal of therapy and then it's going to end. That was pretty cool. But, um, I mean, I'm in New York and my therapist was in California. So she had to get a, a special dispensation from the New York board to be able to see me. And we, it was, I mean, we met the goal of therapy and I was happy with it, but it wasn't about trauma. Okay. We didn't work on the trauma. What can people do if they're working on trauma or triggers or pain or whatever between their therapy sessions, between therapists, even between therapy goals? Well, this was the reason why I created the Becoming Safe and Body Skills personally, I, I knew, you know, I had my trauma came up when I was living at a yoga ashram. So I had plenty of time to practice, but it was different. You know, I used to be able to do hours and hours of yoga and meditation. And suddenly when my trauma came up, all I wanted to do was hide under the bed. So I really had to rework that whole bit. And then when I was working at Bessel van der Kolk's clinic, he asked me to run groups. And I thought it's so important because people, you were there with your therapist for an hour, maybe two hours a week. And then what do you do? The rest of the 23 hours a day, let alone the whole week. And so these skills were specifically designed for how do you stay with yourself and reconnect yourself, reorient and be with yourself so that you can actually enjoy your life between sessions rather than staying stuck in the trauma experience and just digging that hole deeper and deeper and feeling like you're never going to get out. I like that. So you worked with Bessel van der Kolk who wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Right. Right. And I read that book. And what I found interesting was it almost seemed 
like it was like a judgment on the way medicine is practiced and managed in America and the whole fact that the DSM is a bunch of crap. <laughs> especially the first half of the book where he talks about, look, I have this research. I see that trauma is a big issue and still, you know, the DSM was never supposed to be for, you know, billing and coding. And yet that's what it's become. And we still can't get, you know, childhood trauma as a, a code in the D, in the DSM, right. which really is. So for anyone who doesn't know what this is, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, they're into the fifth version of it now. And it's primarily used as a diagnosis vehicle for psychologists and psychotherapists in, for insurance purposes. And there seems to be a, a lot of resistance about childhood trauma almost because of normalizing the sexualization of children. That's what I got out of that book. Well, the first not part just of the sexualization, but neglect as well. The whole yeah. idea of developmental trauma, which is you may not even be have a sexual brown, uh, boundary broken, but those hard boundaries are broken mm. and we don't have the language for it. We don't understand it. And yes, and Bessel is on the forefront and has been for decades at trying to change that. If you're going to reconnect with yourself between sessions, what what are some practical? It sounds when when I heard you talking about, you know, between sessions, it was almost like you felt like you were alive during that time and then like what do I do for the That's rest of the time? What happens for people. Yeah, um, so how how do we feel alive all the time? Well, part of it is reclaiming ourselves. One of the complicated things about therapy is that we go into therapy to get those external needs met so that we can feel connected inside ourselves. But then we have to switch gears and go back into our, our adult self out in the world where we have to align ourselves inside to be connected on the outside. So it, it's a tough threshold to shift. Mm. And that's where the becoming safely embodied skills are so helpful because you begin to notice it. You notice the developmental task that's happening for you right now. Okay, I'm leaving this safe, warm container. Now I got to go out into the world. What kind of thoughts do I have? What feelings do I have? What sensations? What are the facts? What are the feelings? Feelings are coming up. How am I getting triggered by this event? And how can I be with myself? So that I begin to align myself. I call it the vertical axis, being connected to all that is, being grounded into the deep, rich, fertile motherhood of the earth mm -hmm. and being with all the parts inside and our heart, grounding inside, gathering ourselves into our heart. <sighs> okay, now how do I be with you? And that's a process, yeah. but it's a worthy endeavor. And the people that do this, they, it's like they walk out into a clear sky, into a, a world that's so much better and easier to live. Yeah. You know, the analogy I get is that you can't overcome trauma in just one. I mean, Tony Robbins would say you can, but I think no. it's... I, I think it's really hard for, for anyone to come over, overcome, you know, facile to say that significant trauma in just one or two sessions, just like you can't lose a hundred pounds overnight. Right. And there is a process of becoming that person that has the discipline to eat the right way and move the right way. And to start thinking like that person who is a hundred pounds lighter now and doing the things that that 100-pound lighter person does now. So you start to be that person. And it's almost the same thing that, that if you're going to get free of trauma, you're going to get pulled back sometimes. But for the most part, it's to anchor yourself in the present to like who you want to be and who you are and who you're going to be. And really being mindful of, of the type of person you want to project to the world. Exactly, Michelle. Yeah. 
I remember when I first got, you know, I, I think there was like, I think uh, maybe I was in graduate school. I thought, oh, I'll be able to conquer my triggers. I'll learn everything I can. So I'm never triggered again. And I realized it's just not the case. We're still going to get triggered. The question is, how are we going to be with ourselves when we get triggered? Am I going to get angry and lash out or am I going to stop and pause and say, wow, I'm really angry right now. How do I want to be? Yeah, there's something about becoming an adult. And, you know, the millennials talk about adulting and there is adulting. And then there's just embracing the fact that no one else is going to take care of you as right. an adult. Right. And, and when you embrace that fact and realize that you have to love yourself first, and I know that sounds cliche, but it is the hardest. I think it's really hard to do. I think it's really hard to do. And it's a lot easier to berate myself than it is to be <laughs> gentle with myself. And right. for whatever reason, you know, that's my go-to is self-deprecation and, you know, berating. And so it's better to try and hook some sort of an anchor there, some trigger when I start to berate myself to remember, oh, you know, I love myself now. And the best example I have is we went on a cruise um, back in the day <laughs> when, when cruise ships were a thing. And we, it was the end of 2017. And every time I looked in the mirror, I was, you're so fat, you're so fat, you're so fat. And so of course I stayed fat. And it was like a new year's resolution kind of thing, which I don't really do, but I do you know, annual planning. And I just said, the mirror is going to be on my anchor. And I'm going to say, I love you every time I look in the mirror. Mm. And I don't know how much the scale has moved. I know that my mind has moved a lot. I mean, the scale's probably moved a good 20 pounds since then. Ability to even just say it, whether or not I believe it has been huge, you know? And, and I, well, I think, I think it's so important to, to think about what it is you want right? Like way, way, way back now we're talking, gosh, 2009 or 2010, I started a coaching program with uh, the Jack Canfield company, actually. And one of my goals was to connect with the divinity within. And I didn't even believe there was a divinity within at the time, but I was like, okay, I want to connect with that. And it wasn't until I would say 2016, maybe 2015, that I actually started to believe that there was a divinity within and that, that we all come from the same thing. Right. But I set that intention way back. And, you know, kind of like how the universe works, you set an intention, it's going to help you get there as long as it's in alignment. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. So before we close, let's talk about some skills that you recommend that people can do on a daily basis to, you know, get them better, faster. <laughs> <laughs> so they well, can't, you know, to I, get them out of I, overwhelm I and stuckness. Can. My colleague, Janina Fisher, who we met when we were both at uh, Bessel van der Kolk's clinic, she's now doing a lot of wonderful work with dissociation and people with fragmented cells. But she loved the becoming so uh, becoming safely embodied skills so much. She would send her clients there and they would get better faster. And she was like, what's going on in there? And so she ended up co-leading the groups with me for years because she said, I want to know what this is. So those... Everything that's in the book are really simple, simple, practical skills that will help you get better faster when you practice them. But then they're also simple little things, like I said earlier, about like changing your energy. If you're anxious or you're depressed or you're angry, how do you just begin? You're, you're undercutting the mind. You're undercutting those old stories. That's one way. They're, even simple things like you're feeling tight. So you breathe up and you hold and then just gently exhale, lengthening your exhale. That's going to increase the parasympathetic. Simple things like that are helpful. We have um, naming, being able to name what's going on, externalizing it. We had somebody who's a 
Becoming Safely Embodied certified practitioner who's an art therapist at uh, Salve Regina University in Newport. And she did, a it's on the web now, a uh, class for us on how do you take the skills of a thought, what's a thought, what's a feeling, what's a body sensation and mm. transform them just using simple art, not anything big, just simple doodling kind of things and how people change with that. So they're very concrete ways to do that. And, you know, it's just wonderful to see people change. Yeah, that's, I think the best part is to take control and not let the past run your life. That's, I think, the the biggest thing. So was there anything else you were hoping to share that we didn't get to? Oh my God, we covered a lot of ground. I could talk forever on this. (laughs) I think one of the things I want to leave with is this idea that we're not here to be trampled by life. You know, that we really are here to grow, develop, and flourish, to take the muck of our lives and transform that. And that's why I love this idea of becoming a modern-day bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva is somebody who deliberately chooses to stay with people and not ascend, and not, but to be here and help others change and grow and develop, transform the suffering into compassion. And that's what I really believe we're meant to do with our own lives. I see you doing that. I see so many people doing that. I see myself doing that. That's the choice is I want, instead of staying stuck in suffering, there's a way through and it's always through the heart and it's always with love. I love that. So where can people find you? My website is dfay.com. Very simple, dfay.com. The book is on in on Amazon, so people can find it there very easily. Yeah, we'll, we'll link up the book in the show notes for sure. That'd be great. Thank you. Um, I have other books as well. One is a book on attachment-based yoga and meditation for trauma. So that's really goes into the whole attachment piece of it. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of practices in that book as well. But the Becoming Safe in Body Skills are the simple, uh, important ways that people can get there. Her new book is Becoming Safely Embodied, A Guide to Organize Your Mind, Body, and Heart to Feel Secure in the World. Dear DeFay, thank you so much for being a part of the menopause movement today. Always a pleasure, Michelle. Did you know that menopause is not a medical condition? Most doctors don't know this either. I like to say that menopause is the privilege of a long life, and to really take hold of our lives in menopause, we have to unlearn what society and the medical establishment has told us about menopause. This is why I've created this brand new course called Understanding Your Hormones and Managing Your Menopause. I want to show you how you can get on top of your menopause right now so that you can start to see it as the best time of your life. Now, this course is valued at $500 and is in the beta testing phase. And we're currently accepting applications for women to test it out for us at no charge in exchange for feedback and testimonials. But the best part is because you're a podcast listener, you can bypass the application process and go straight to the front of the line. To register right now, simply visit menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones and we can get started together right now. Remember, you can get started right now at no charge to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials when you go to menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones. And I'll see you inside the course. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement.